Today we're starting a new series, Future Family. And I don't think there's any area of life where if you get it right, it brings more joy than a family does. And I don't know of any area where when you get it wrong, it causes more pain. So we're launching this series about the family and God's wisdom for human relationships. And this very much relates to relationships in all of our lives, whether you're married or single or raising a family right now or not. But here's the challenge. We all have a family, uh, but our family experiences, our, our families of origin, or our current families, they're so diverse. We've got all kinds represented here. Two-parent families, blended families, single-parent, second marriage, between marriages, empty nesters. It's so diverse, and the whole conversation around families is so challenging, but at the same time, it's always so relevant. So I was thinking, with all this diversity, what do we have in common? Well, just about the only thing I can uh, think of is that when it comes to our family of origin, well, like, we didn't have a choice in the matter, right? You can't pick your family. You, you can pick your friends. You can pick your nose. You can't pick your friend's nose. And you can't pick your family. But isn't it interesting? Like when you were in junior high school, you wanted to pick your friend's family. It's like, oh, I want, I want to live in that, that family. I want, I want them to be my family. Or I want our family to be more like that family. Because family can be difficult. And maybe you came from a great family, or maybe your, your family of origin had, had some challenges. You could kind of tell which one uh, by uh, your response to these two words. Family reunion. Yeah, some of you look forward to those. Some of you, you kind of dread those. You know, ooh, stay away from crazy Uncle John. For most of us, family is a bit mixed, isn't it? Even that word family is kind of a loaded word. The word father is not an emotionally neutral word. Neither is mother, or brother, or sister. When, when you hear those words, there's all kinds of emotions. Joy, and happiness, and sadness, and background and chaos and memories, just so uh, these are not emotionally neutral terms. So it's a challenging subject, but it's an important one because of the things that, one of the things that we all do have in common is that our family experiences are the central building block for our relational world. What we learned in our families, we've carried with us throughout life, which means it carries over into the rest of our relationships. So how your family handled love and relationships and responsibility and, and guilt and independence and physical affection, finances, punishment, trust, all of that combines in a way that can't help but affect our future relationships. For example, how many of you guys uh, have ever said something then you caught yourself and you're like, ah, oh, sound just like my dad, <laughs> sound just like my mom. Remember as a kid, I was always like, you know, when I'm a parent, I'm never going to make my kids eat their vegetables or uh, clean up their room, wash the car, wh whatever it was. Like, maybe you said uh, that along those lines or maybe uh, serious issues. Like, hey, you know, when I'm a parent, when I'm an adult, I, I, I don't want to handle this issue the way that my parents handled it. But then you become a parent, you find yourself reliving those same patterns. Which can be positive if you find yourself emulating those things your parents did well. Or it can be negative when there are character traits or behaviors or, or patterns that are destructive and you find yourself doing those same things. But no matter your background, my guess is uh, that unless you've been real intentional about it, you generally handle relationships the same way that one or both of your parents did. So this topic of family is real important, not only because 
of the past that has influenced you in ways you might not even be aware of, but because the patterns that you put in place have a huge influence on your future family and on future generations. The patterns of relating and handling conflict and communicating and attitudes and all kinds of other things get passed on to your kids and to your grandkids. And so the question is, how do we build families on a foundation that honors God? But here's the challenge. See, when you look at, at families in the Bible, there's almost no good examples. Even Jesus. It's like, oh, have you seen Jesus? No. Have you seen him? No. no. Only they left him at the temple. Right? In fact, maybe the most extended treatment of a family in Scripture uh, involves a father named Isaac and a mother named Rebecca and their twin sons named Esau and Jacob. But as you dig into this story, it becomes clear everybody in this family did almost everything wrong. In fact, this is actually a story about how to mess up a family. So what I want to do this morning is kind of walk through this family's story with you and point out some of the mistakes and what we can learn from them. And then we're going to see one thing at the very end that they do get right. Well, Isaac and Rebecca get married. Uh, they wanted very much to have kids, but have to wait like 20 years. Rebecca is barren for 20 years. Finally, she's pregnant. And when the time comes for her to give birth, the text says that there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. And some Bibles have a footnote there that will tell you that that name Esau could mean hairy. <laughs> Not an attractive sounding child, is it? His whole body looked like a hairy garment, you know? Then they name him after his worst physical feature. It's kind of like, you know, saying, hey, this is our little son, Fuzzball. Quick tip at this point, don't name your child after his ugliest physical feature and you're already going to be ahead of this family. Well, so Esau's born and then his twin Jacob comes out grabbing at his brother's heel. So they name him Jacob, which could mean the grabber or who, he who grabs at the heel. Uh, the boys grew up Esau became a skillful hunter, man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. And then comes the killer verse, the one, uh, the words that the whole tragic story of this family would rise and fall on. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. You want to mess with a family? Play favorites. Pick one kid and pay more attention to them and wrap your heart around them Compare one kid against another in any field of life. Learn to withhold affection, and you'll inflict wounds that will last a lifetime. Some of you know what that feels like. And that's what happens in this family. Esau is a man's man. He's athletic. He's a hunter, you know. He's got this keen eye and, and skillful uh, reflexes. And he was, he was called a man of the open country. He would have been home in, in Minnesota, right? Outdoors. He's an outdoors guy. He's marked by physical courage and strength. He's the one who played football and baseball growing up. And he was good. He was the first kid chosen on the playground. And he fed his dad's ego in ways that athletic sons do in families that idolize sports. And Isaac would look at his other son, Jacob, and just kind of shake his head and wonder, like, you know, how hard to believe this kid came from the same womb. Like, why do you sit around inside with your mom all day? Why don't you go outside and play with the other kids? Like your brother. But Jacob didn't want to. He had been chosen last once too often. And he had the wrong temperament to suit his dad. So when his dad talked to him, Jacob didn't say much, but he watched a lot. He knew who the favorite kid was. Kids always know. 
Because Isaac loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Maybe she thought she'd kind of compensate for Isaac. Maybe she loved Jacob because he stayed inside with her. But if you want to mess up a family, do what these parents did. Learn to play favorites. Learn how to direct more love toward one kid than another. But if you want a great family, you have to learn to honor the raw material of each person in it. You know, I'll tell you what are sometimes called the three laws of relationships. And this is not original to me. Most of you know the three laws of real estate. Three laws of real estate are what? Location, location, location. The three laws of relationship are observation, observation, observation. If you love somebody, especially if you're a parent and you have a child, you become the world's greatest student of that child. What are they like? What are they afraid of? What are they good at? What gives them life? What, what are they drawn toward? And then instead of trying to mold them into what you want them to be, honor the person that God made them to be. When our kids were born, I had all kinds of naive ideas about ways that I would shape them. And I came to learn that a whole lot of their temperament and personality just kind of comes pre-wired. And, and I have much less influence over them than I thought I would. My job as a dad is not to try to engineer moments that will make me feel good all the time. My job is to watch each child and, and learn about them and discipline them and coach them and, and celebrate the person God made them to be, not some little alter ego that I think I'd want. It, it's crazy sometimes how careless parents are when they, they, uh, about this kind of thing. I, I'll hear parents talk about their children in ways that almost disown them. Like, oh, my cares are a different one. Vic, Vic, he's not an athlete like his brothers. We don't know where we got Sarah. And that kind of thing often gets said in kind of a jokey tone, but the message is real clear. This child's a disappointment. This, this kid doesn't make me feel like a winner. Parents, express affection and appreciation on a regular basis. Tell your child you love them. If it's awkward and you're not real good at it, tell them anyway. If they're awkward at receiving it and, and they sometimes don't tell you back, tell them anyway. Because it's not about getting your children to make you feel loved. It's not about being comfortable. If I'm a parent, it's not their job to fill up my neediness. Only God can do that. This is about building up their hearts. This is a story where a couple sons didn't get that from a parent and they desperately needed to hear those words. Later on, chapter 27 of Genesis, we find Isaac, uh, he's an old man at this point. He's virtually blind. He's very weak, doesn't have long to live. So he calls in Esau, his favorite son, and he says, hey, go hunt some wild game and, and fix my favorite meal and I'll give you my blessing before I die. Now here's what's going on. See, the blessing was a big, big deal because a child's spiritual and relational destiny would be named and their financial future would be told. Kind of like the will and a bunch of other things all rolled into one. And as firstborn child in that culture, Esau would get the largest portion of that inheritance. But not all of it. Okay, Every child was supposed to get a blessing. Here, Isaac does the unthinkable. He calls Esau in and plans to give the blessing only to Esau. Jacob's going to get shut out. Isaac doesn't even tell Rebekah what he's about to do. This is just between him and Esau. Now, it just so happens that Rebekah is eavesdropping at the door of the tent and overhears the whole thing. Anybody hear, ever hear of a family that has issues respecting privacy? Okay, Rebekah has a choice to make. She could march into the room and talk to Isaac about what's going on, but she doesn't do that. She goes away, has another secret conversation with her favorite, Jacob. 
In fact, one of the striking aspects of this family is the lack of communication between Isaac and Rebekah. They're engaged in kind of a, a favoritism and misguided lack of love that's killing their kids and killing their family. But what's most amazing is they never even talk to each other about it. They both see what's going on with the other one. It's kind of the elephant in the room, but it never gets named. Instead, Rebecca goes to Jacob. She tells him about Isaac's plan, comes up with another plan of her own. She's like, hey, let's deceive your father. Jacob, just go kill a couple goats, and then I'll make that goat burger casserole your dad likes so much, and you can give it to him and pretend that you're Esau. Then you'll get Esau's blessing. How does Jacob respond? Well, he could have said, hey, mom, I can't do that. That would be deceitful. But he doesn't. He just says, hey, you know, mom, Esau's kind of a hairy guy, and I'm smooth-skinned, and I might get caught. Mom's way ahead of him. She's got this hairy goatskin gloves made. And so when dad touches Jacob's hands, he, he's going to think they're Esau's. And it's like a scene in a movie. It's very skillfully told. Jacob goes into his dad and you kind of wonder, you know, is Esau going to come back? Is he going to catch them? Uh, blow uh, Jacob's cover before he gets a blessing? Jacob walks into his dad's sick room and Isaac, who's now virtually blind, is like, who is it? And Jacob's response, so interesting. His his turn to lie now. He says, it's Esau, your firstborn son. Why does he add that last phrase? There's only one Esau. It's not like his dad is going to get confused. Oh, which Esau was this? No, no. Jacob is leaking bitterness here. The first is your firstborn son. The one that, that counts with you, isn't it, dad? It's the one, one that uh, has your heart. I've seen how your eyes light up when Esau walks in the room. They never light up for me. Now those eyes are old and they're blind and those eyes will never light up for me. See, inside the heart of every child is this deep, deep need to know that they can make their dad's eyes light up. Their mom's eyes light up. That's the pain that's being expressed here. It's Esau, your firstborn son. Isaac asked his son, well, how did you find it so quickly, my son? <laughs> the Lord your God gave me success, he replied. If you're prepared to tell one lie, you better get ready to tell a whole lot of them because deceit has a way of expanding. Now Jacob's dragging God into it to kind of make himself sound more spiritual. Notice, he doesn't say, the Lord my God. He says, the Lord your God. It's because Isaac's never passed on his faith to his son Jacob. Well, the plan works and Jacob gets the blessing. As soon as he leaves the room, Esau comes in and then it hits Isaac what happened and what he's done. And Isaac almost goes into convulsions. Some of the most dramatic language ever to use, be used in Scripture is used to describe his response in this passage. And then Esau, Esau is undone. Don't you have a blessing for me, Father? Do you not have a blessing for me? And this is the irony of deceit. Isaac sets out on this sneaky plan where he's going to give a blessing only to Esau, and he ends up giving it to Jacob. Rebekah sets out to manipulate things for Jacob, and as a result, Jacob has to leave home for 20 years. She never gets to see him alive again. You know a great way to mess up a family? Keep secrets. Shade the truth. Learn how to manipulate people. Learn how to pretend. You don't really have to teach this because kind of, you know... Lying and deceit, that comes naturally to us. We all wrestle with truth-telling, don't we? You know what, the most famous story about uh, lying in American history, George Washington cutting down the cherry tree? That was written in a biography by Parson Weems in the 19th century, and he made the story up. So the most famous story about not lying in America was a lie. <laughs> so anybody who says they never lie, they're lying. One level or another, like 
Everybody I know wrestles with deceit. Everybody does. If you want a great family, make a tenacious commitment to speak the truth in love. If there are unhealthy dynamics going on in your family, as there were in this one, for your sake, for your family's sake, for God's sake, bring them up and talk about it. Think of how different this family might have been uh, if Isaac and Rebecca had just one conversation where Rebecca says to Isaac, well, I think you favor Esau. And Isaac's like, well, I, I think you favor Jacob. Why is that? You know, what can we do about that? How could that change? How, how might I manage my emotions? How, how do I learn to give love even though my feelings uh, fluctuate? That kind of thing can be done. If, if somebody's wrestling with unnamed character issues in your family, name them. You can either love somebody or you can practice pain avoidance with somebody, but you can't do both. In a family, every time truth wins, the family wins. If you want to mess up a family, learn how to hide. Learn how to pretend. Learn how to shade the truth. But it's not just deceit. Anybody here have a brother or sister or, or more than one kid? Yeah. Ever have conflict in your family as, as a result of that? Sure. One of the primary themes of this family is conflict and anger and mismanaged resentment. When Rebecca was pregnant, the text literally says these two babies smashed each other around in her womb. Kind of a foreshadowing. Just like from the time they're born, there's just conflict. And they smashed into each other a lot until one day Esau, we're told, held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given to Jacob. And so Esau says to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near, then I will kill my brother Jacob. So interesting. Nowhere in this story does their dad or mom ever sit down with them and say, well, here are the values that we hold in our family with regard to anger. Here's what's acceptable. Here's what's off limits. They never teach their children what God says about how to deal with conflict that's inevitable. Want to mess up a family? Just don't teach people how to deal with anger. Just let anger go underground, unresolved. You know, there's going to be a few times in your child's life when anger issues tend to spike. One of them comes pretty early when they're about two years old. When a kid hits age two, what's their favorite word? No, no. And they love to say it as often as they can. And this is often not the parent's favorite stage in the child's life. But learning to, to say no is a real important phase in the development of, of that child because the day is going to come when they really need a strong no when they're going to get pressured about substance abuse or sexual involvement or any of a number of other areas and you're going to be really glad that child developed a real strong no you got to help them do that if you're a parent you know when they're little just like eh, sometimes just goofy stuff like ask them a question where they can say no hey can i eat all of your dessert you know let them build a strong no that's going to last about a year though, when those anger issues and no come up. And then things tend to normalize. The next time anger issues tend to spike is around age 13. How often does this era last? 30 or 40 years. Okay. See, their bodies are going nuts. And their hormones are all over the place. And you look at them and those little bodies are filled with multiple personalities and you're never sure which one's going to come out. And it takes a lot of patience. You want to build a great family? Make a commitment to asking God's help and teaching the people in your family God's wisdom for managing anger. Do you let your kids get mad at each other? Of course. Yeah, that's a critical part of growing up. That's going to happen. Do you let them hit each other? No, never. 
Once kids are verbal and old enough to kind of use words and understand words, then they have to learn that the physical expression of anger is not acceptable. See, every time there is an argument or conflict between a parent and a child, it's an opportunity to teach them about anger management. And when they get it right, affirm them. Tell them. Let them know. They hit a certain age, you know, and perhaps their normal response when they're not happy about something is to roll their eyes. Ever see a kid roll their eyes? Yeah, you'll hit an era where their strongest muscles in their body are their eye muscles because of all the, the practice they get rolling their eyes at you. One time when they're angry and they don't do that, they just look you in the eye and talk to you directly about what they're angry about. Come back to them later and say, hey, I want to tell you, I'm so proud of the way that you handled that. You got angry, you dealt with it in such a God-honoring way. You know how badly kids need to hear that from you? God has designed parents as the primary ones to teach children how to walk in his ways and how to deal with things like the challenge of anger management. Sometimes parents get so wrapped up in anger and arguments themselves, they forget they're the ones charged by God to teach their kids how to deal with it in a God-honoring way. Now, there's lots of mistakes in this story. There's favoritism and withheld affection and deception and mismanaged anger. Lots of, lots of stuff gets mixed up. Mi- messed up. But I want to tell you about one good thing that happens at the end of the story. Jacob has run away from his family because his brother threatened to kill him. He goes to live with another relative, Uncle Laban. Uncle Laban is like the supreme con artist. He outcons Jacob. There's a kind of this contest between the two. And, and Jacob learns the pain of being deceived. And Jacob goes to character school with Uncle Laban and God changes him. And Jacob invites God into his life and into his family, and he prays, and he decides he's going to go home. But that means facing Esau. The last time he faced Esau, Esau vowed to kill him. Esau is a hunter. He's a big, strong guy. Jacob's no match for him. Jacob is risking his life, and Jacob thinks about it a lot, and he prays about it a lot. And he decides to send some gifts ahead to Esau to kind of soften him up. You know, he sends a bunch of animals worth a bunch of money, uh, in those days, he sends his children on ahead, thinking, you know, well, that might soften up Esau. And Jacob comes last, not having seen his brother Esau for two decades. And the text says that he bows to the ground seven times as an expression of humility and repentance. Then you read the story to see how is Esau going to respond? Is he, is he going to try to kill him? But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Isn't that beautiful? All those years they were enemies. Twenty years as adults, they were strangers. Now, finally, they are brothers. Only God. I'm telling you, only God can heal wounds. I don't, I don't know how wounded you are. Only God can heal. Only God can change character. I don't know how messed up your character is. Only God can change it. Only God can rekindle love. I don't know how much the flame has gone out in you. God can make it come back. Jesus can do in us what we can never do ourselves. This family, these two brothers, they get a whole lot wrong, but they get one thing right. They invite God back in. They reconcile. And they're brothers again. All right, I got a little bit of homework for you again this week. Um, I'll just like you to easy take a look at the discussion questions on the back of your worship folder. 
And then uh, take some time this week, uh, uh, 10 minutes somewhere, talk about them with your family. Take that first one. What's your f- favorite childhood me- family memories? What's one of your favorite childhood family memories? And just talk about it. Yeah, ask that question. Yeah, go around the table. You're going to learn some, some good stuff about the people, you know, and get, share some memories, maybe get some ideas uh, to recreate those or create more memories together. And everybody can participate in this one. If you don't have kids in your life right now or at home or whatever, just share around the table during our fellowship time. Bet you find out some things about the people around the table that you never knew. If you're a parent, between now and next week, make sure you ask the last question. Just ask, where does God want to be at work through me and our family? Just have a 10-minute conversation on that question. See where, God, see, see where God leads. And then everyone, come back next week, and I'm going to give you the best question you can possibly ask within the context of family. If you can get everyone in your family to ask the question that I'm going to share next week, it will change everything. No exaggeration. And it's a very, very, very powerful question. It's the question that changes everything. Let's uh, bow together in prayer.